Epiphany, the season spanning between Christmas and Lent, is the encore to Christmas where following the Magi's lead, we look for the light of the world that has come among us. What a global moment for us to find light in the darkness. As we see so much tumbling down around us, the pain and destruction of COVID and the ripples of violent division in politics, the conditions are perfect for us to see how this deconstruction and reconstruction echo the rhythm of our faith. Deconstruction and reconstruction are the rhythm of faith. We also find that when we don't tend to this process, which honestly is hard to find time, energy, and patience for, we end up feeling spiritually homeless without a sense of belonging. This epiphany, we take the time to engage in collaborative deconstruction and reconstruction, meaning-making and practicing the love of Jesus by creating the conditions for our own epiphanies, ahas, and awakening. We're acknowledging how arrival isn't everything when it comes to our faith. Instead, we keep arriving in significant places to find that there's always a way further on that we follow, led by the light we thought we'd left behind. The Sawhouse staff has worked hard to curate community opportunities for your connection. Our Use at Home Epiphany Inspiration Kits, Watch Together from Home Epiphany Film Nights, Small Groups, After Worship Sunday Zoom Activities, and an epiphany sock and coat drive benefiting the clients of Kirkland Place Shelter. Then our time right now in worship each Sunday, our sermon time leads us through reclaiming words of faith many of us have avoided because of their theological use to hurt and manipulate. Heaven, hell, being saved, sin, evangelical, and the Bible as the word of God these conversations matter because theology matters. Just look around at what's happening in our world right now. All of these epiphany opportunities ask of us, are we here yet? How can we move on from the past to be present to a theology put into practice that grounds us in God in this current moment and fosters belonging deeply to each other? This is our journey for Epiphany 2021. This is the deconstruction and reconstruction we do together now. Well, Sawhouse, my parents met when they were at the wee age of 15, and their two youth groups had taken this joint trip to the Oregon coast. And my dad, whose name is Gary John, has a twin brother whose name is Terry Lawn thanks to their older sister naming them. And Terry, who was like, he was, you know, much more outgoing, um, had first caught my mom's eye. And they had made plans to get together and go out on a date when they got back home. Well, a beach uh, football injury had left Terry with a broken collarbone. So, you know, what does a good twin do? sends his brother. So my dad, Gary, showed up at my mom's door instead and thus began a 55-year love affair. And they were really good kids. And for them, that meant that they didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they didn't go out with kids that did, uh, they didn't dance, they didn't play cards, they didn't swear, they didn't wear fancy jewelry. Uh, And essentially, to them, this meant they didn't sin. And that was the actual doctrine of the church, that it it wasn't enough to be, um, you know, saved. Uh, By the way, check out Sarah's sermon on being saved. Really good one. 
you also had to be sanctified, which to them meant you did not sin. And my mom, who was uh, the daughter of a pastor, <laughs> that meant you really didn't sin. And it was confusing because, my goodness, there were so many ways to sin. <laughs> In fact, every year at the church convention, a new list of taboo things would come out. <clears throat> and one year, my grandmother on my dad's side bought a pretty new floral print dress to wear to the convention. And as she sat there in the congregation, so proud to be wearing this new dress, they read off the list of new taboos. And at the top of this list was vain dresses adorned with flowers that draw attention to yourself. She was humiliated. But my mom, she kind of knew how to navigate this system and she knew how to be a good girl, but inside it was really confusing because, you know, she knew that she had broken people's trust. She knew that she'd done things that she wasn't proud of. You know, she, she had put her own self-interest uh, before others, had hurt others in this way, um, but she wasn't supposed to, you know, sin. <laughs> My mom and dad these two good kids, they married at the age of 22. And with college teaching degrees in hand, they headed out on their honeymoon and they felt kind of free, you know, like they were growing up and they were making grown up decisions. And, and Julie Andrews was starring in a new movie called The Sound of Music and it looked kind of fun to them. So even though they both knew that going into a sinful theater was a wrong, wrong thing to do. On their honeymoon, they went to see The Sound of Music. But during the whole movie, and can I say, this is a long movie. I mean, there is an intermission in the middle of this movie. And in the second half, like, they don't introduce any new music. They just rehash all the music from the beginning of the musical, which is not important to the story, but I, I thought you should know this. But what is important was that during this whole movie, my mom was terrified, just certain that Jesus would return and take one look at her sitting in that sinful theater and say, mm-mm, you blew it. You can't come with me. So maybe you can't relate to the extremes of my parents' story and their religious upbringing. But I bet most of us can relate to the weaponizing of calling things sins. And what I mean by that is the type of control exerted over people with the threat of you know, communal shame or, or even worse, the threat of divine shame, divine punishment, exclusion. And, you know, as a kind of a reactionary result, you know, I, I very infrequently use the word sin, I've noticed. And in this strange turn of events, even kind of in a lot of circles, the word sin has become a taboo word in and of itself. But the Bible, the Bible has a lot to say about the human dilemma. Uh, and it might be a lot different than what we think. 
And that's what I want us to take a minute looking at together. So, Salt House, are you ready for a brief survey on sin? The Bible uses a lot of weird words that we don't often use. Um, and here's three big ones that we're going to take a look at. You ready? Iniquity, transgression, and sin. And uh, I've learned just a ton about these Hebrew words from Tim Mackey. Uh, so thank you so much, Tim. Um, but let's take a look at these. And the first one is, whoop, wait for it. Transgression. Pesha. Uh, in the Hebrew. <clears throat> and it's best understood as a betrayal of trust in a relationship. Um, transgression is, it's, it's breaking someone's trust. So if, um, you know, if you're my friend and I tell you the secret that I literally pooped my pants in Nordstrom's while I was looking for a birthday gift for my daughter this week, and then you went and you blabbed it all over social media, that would be a transgression, a pasha, because you would have been breaking the trust of our friendship here, just to uh, give a completely uh, random hypothetical situation. Or like the prophet Amos, who accuses Israel of Pesha for, quote, selling the poor for a pair of sandals. Because the people of Israel, like as a community, have a special relationship with those experiencing poverty. And to sell them out is a relational Betrayal. It's a transgression. So each kind of relationship, it holds a certain, you know, unique kind of trust. And so transgression is defined by the unique relationship. And I think this is like the first thing that's important to note about how the Bible talks about what we generically call sin is it's always relational. You know, it, it, it's not how, about how good you are or your piety, you know? It's about how good the relationship is and the pain that happens when relationships are ruptured. So that's the first thing, transgression, betray uh, betrayal of trust, and that sin is always relational. It's always about relationship. Second word, wait for it, got it right here. Second word is iniquity. Iniquity. That's not a word you use anytime lately. In Hebrew, ava, and it literally means like crooked or bent or out of shape or corruption. Um, could refer to corrupt political politicians, uh, corrupt business, uh, corrupt religious practices, corrupt leaders, a corrupt heart. So, for instance, in Isaiah, the prophet calls out the injustice of Israel's leaders and says, there is so much ava, so much crookedness right now in Jerusalem that integrity can't even enter our city. And so God is then moved to action. And this is the second thing that's important to note about how the Bible talks about what we generally call sin is that God takes iniquity, corruption, personally. Meaning when you're unjust against your neighbor, God says, oh, that is against me. You know, we hear this same thing from Jesus when he says, when you neglect the hungry or the sick or the imprisoned or those without food or shelter, Jesus says, I take that very personally. You're doing it directly to me. So that's the level of solidarity, solidarity 
that Jesus has with our hurting world who bear so much of the harm of iniquity. So abuse then to any image bearer is an abuse to God. So iniquity, the second word, uh, means corruption. And uh, God takes it very personally. And so now the last word that uh, we most frequently translate as sin is kata, kata. Um, and its basic meaning isn't a religious meaning. It just, it just means to fail, right? To, to, um, to not do the thing that you're trying to do, to fail. So, for instance, like wanting to finish tiling the backsplash in your kitchen, but since no one has uh, been over to your house in like over a year now, and your spouse has stopped bugging you about it, but the raw sheetrock just sits there reminding you of your kata or your failure. Also a totally random and hypothetical example. But the Bible, the Bible adapts this meaning to like a greater goal of human beings. Because it tells us that every human being is an image of God and worthy of respect. From like page one, the Bible tells us that. So therefore, sin or kata is a failure to love God and to love others by not treating them with the dignity that they deserve. Imagine just for a minute. Imagine like how your actions might change if you went about your life, you went about just one day with this urgent conviction that every person you encountered was the very image of God. I mean, my goodness, how would, how would things change for you in your interactions? Or that you are the very image of God because that's what God says about you. How would this change things for you? But even more than that, sin is more than just a personal action. Um, it is systemic. So the very first mention of sin in the book of Genesis is not in the Garden of Eden. Um, it's actually when Yahweh is warning Cain about his anger and jealousy toward his brother Abel and the danger that it presents. Yahweh says, look, if you don't choose what is good, kata." is crouching at the door, and kata wants to dominate you, to dominate you. Sin is just like a, a beast waiting to eat you up. And Paul, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that sin is, is described best by the language of addiction. It's, you know, it's what I don't want to do, but I do it anyway. I don't want to, but I do it anyway. I'm just, I'm controlled by it. You know, it's just, it is the water I swim in. It's the swamp. It's the muck that I am stuck in. Sin is, is, is even more than just, um, just our choices. The Apostle Paul likens this dilemma to being trapped or like held captive. And even when I think that I'm doing something good, you know, it just sometimes it just doesn't even turn out good. It turns out bad. The, the knot just keeps getting tighter and tighter the more I struggle against it. So sin is a system that we live in where some benefit by it, some don't. You know, um, Jamar Tisby, he's giving me this education right now about the sin of slavery, you know, America's original sin and the white church's complicity at every step along the way. 
I just finished uh, the chapter on America's Great Awakening. I had no idea that while Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, these like you know, these are these, these famous American preachers, while they were giving sermons about, you know, like sinners in the hands of an angry God, at that same exact time, they owned human beings. I mean, the word hypocrisy doesn't even begin. So no, no. Sin's not about movie theaters and flower dresses. It's not about moral perfection and, you know, getting it right. It's always been about justice and human dignity. It's always been about restoring relationship. It's not, it's not so much about being correct. It's about being connected to God and to each other. Because the consequences are, are such separation. And that's why when Jesus comes on the scene, like we don't see him condemning sinners. You know, the, really the only people that Jesus calls out are the ones who just think that they've got it all together. And in fact, Jesus loves sinners. See, you knew this was going to be like a Valentine's Day sermon after all, right? But instead of letting humanity destroy itself, Jesus becomes the repairer of relationship. Jesus comes to free us up to love God and to love one another. Jesus comes to stop this like never-ending cycle of violence and blame and scapegoating. Humanity like does its worst to Jesus. Transgression, iniquity, sin. But Jesus doesn't return evil for evil. Instead, Jesus says, forgive them. Forgive them. And through the cross of Jesus, God softens our hearts. Maybe even right now is softening our hearts and creating a place for us to, to be safe enough, to own, to be loved enough, to own our own failures of love, to take responsibility for the ways that we even benefit from unjust systems, to make amends, to make reparations, and to learn a new way, to learn the way of Jesus. So Salt House, we started this epiphany series because, um, because community members would say to me or to Sarah, uh, you know, I grew up with um, this really conservative theology and it kind of worked for a while, kind of put my world in order, but then tragedy hit or I got a divorce or I came out to my parents, and that neat and tidy theology of my youth, it didn't work for me anymore. So then I entered into this deconstruction phase, we would hear. And the tearing down was like the easy part, right? But now I'm in this different phase. I'm in this reconstruction phase, and that is hard. And I'm not looking for someone to simply like replace old dogmas with new dogmas, but I need someone to help me think through old categories in fresh ways. And so that's what Sarah and I have wanted to do through this epiphany series that looked at things like being saved and heaven and hell and evangelical and the Bible is the word of God and sin. And maybe you've got a word that we missed and that you wanted us to talk about. Why don't you throw it into the comments there or throw it in an email to us even better. 
So we approached this series not as a way to say, hey, listen, Salt House, you have to believe this way. No. We approached this series as a way to say, look, look, here's some other ways to look at this. And Sarah and I, we don't even agree on all the topics that we talked about here. And I love that. I love that. I, I mean, I love hearing her perspective and, and her process and and she tolerates mine. And, <laughs> and our goal here is not to be a community of sameness. Sarah had this great line uh, for that we should totally make into a bumper sticker that would read, um, can't we all just disagree? <laughs> I think that would be great. <laughs> because isn't that what you know, a lot of our families need right now, right? Like a little more curiosity about what desire or what shame or what fear might be underneath those rigidly defended beliefs. A little more curiosity. And our country is needing that, right? Just a little bit more capacity to say, you know, I see this differently, but we don't have to agree in order to love each other. We don't have to agree in order to be kind to one another or to respect your God-given dignity. So, are we here yet? <laughs> no way. How boring would that be anyways? But are we ever, are we ever... <laughs> So, my friends, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.